a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. I am the one they call Brian Hyde, and I am so happy you're part of my growing audience of wrong thinkers. Our program is brought to you in part by Alta Bank, as well as Landmark Risk Management and Insurance and Monticello College. I appreciate those sponsors. I hope you'll take the time to visit them. I have happily supplied links at the end of my show notes today. It's the show notes for January 20th, 2021. Yeah, it's inauguration day today. And, you know, I I have talked to people on absolute extreme ends of the political spectrum. Pardon me. I get a little choked up on special occasions like this. So I have some people who are um, actually very actively going to be watching, you know, the inauguration, the virtual inauguration from behind the fences, the barricades, the military checkpoints, the most popular president ever elected is going to uh, virtually take office. I'm sorry, the irony is is so strong, you know, that, uh, you know, this this was obviously what the people wanted, so much so we've had to militarize the entire District of Columbia uh, just to make sure that uh, nobody, you know, acts out. I don't know. I'm getting some mixed messages here. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, there are people who I think are a little more like me in that uh, I'm not going to be tuning in to, to watch, um, I, I but I haven't done this really for any of them. And, and I, I don't want to make this sound, please don't think that I'm saying I'm better than you because I don't really care about what the political class is doing. I'm just, uh, I, I have more important areas in which I want to focus my energy. Now, you get to make your own mind up about you know, where your moral energy goes on a day-to-day basis. For me, uh, it just that what the political class is up to and the, uh, the pomp and the circumstance and the pageantry, it doesn't really relate to what I'm doing. So, you know, it's it's fine and dandy for those who want to celebrate it. Great. I didn't celebrate Trump's inauguration. I didn't, you know, take time out of my day to watch that. I didn't do it. I don't think I've done it for any of the presidents that, that, that I can think of. Other than, you know, maybe being at work and, okay, so there's, a, you know, there's a, a news update coming across. But uh, I just don't care that much. And we're going to talk more about why that attitude of I don't care doesn't necessarily mean that I don't care what's going on in this country. I care a lot about what's going on in this country. I just don't care about the political political class. In fact, later this hour, I'm going to share with you a terrific essay about the lesson of Trump. I think the greatest blessing of studying history is that it provides us with essential lessons about what works and what doesn't. In fact, you know what? I'm going to bump this to the head of the line. It's really a terrific piece. Um, I, I used to follow the Z-Man years ago, and suddenly, uh, you know, I, I could not find couldn't find his blog. Uh, he was back today. This is a piece that I, I found published on LewRockwell.com, and this is called "The Lesson of Trump," number one. Now, I got to warn you right up front: this is not going to make everybody happy. Okay, if you're if you're a fan of Trump, you're probably going to feel like you're being slighted because 
It does not, you know, it does not put Trump first and foremost as, you know, blameless and walks on water and all that. But neither does it just strictly demonize, you know, the Democrats. There's there's more to this. The Z-Man says, as the military begins the process of installing the pretender as the figurative leader of the American empire, it's a good time to take stock of what has happened over the last five years. From the perspective of political psychology, the world all of us inhabit today is a vastly different one from the world of 2015. And this includes the dissident right, which has been transformed by the Trump experience. In before times... Politics was all shades of gray, while today it's in black and white. An obvious example is conservative ink. The Obama years were tough for those rackets, so it became clear to many conservative people that these guys cared more about how the left thought of them than in advancing their issues. Compounding it was the refusal to address the failures of the Bush years. Even so, they thought they could keep peddling hyper-violent progressivism to conservatives as long as they decorated it with pictures of Reagan. But the Z-Man says that racket smashed onto the rocks of the Trump experience. Traffic for the old-school neocon sites collapsed. The weekly standard folded. These people revealed themselves to be a blend of old-school confidence men and petulant, nasty liars who hate the people they claim to represent. Now, they still have an audience of chumps unable to smarten up, but otherwise conservative Inc. has no audience. They exist because the left thinks they are useful for now. Further to that point... Libertarian Inc., a subsidiary of Conservative Inc., has also been exposed as a long con. By stripping of our, uh, the stripping of our ancient liberties by global enterprise should have been a great cause for libertarians. After all, systematically stripping a people of their ability to exist is pretty much what libertarians claim to oppose. But the major organs were silent. A combination of graft and perfidy kept them focused on echoing progressive talking points about the evil Donald Trump. And this has revealed something else. The dissident right is not ready to be the dissident right in capital letters, despite the growing numbers. And this is a problem that dates to the 1980s when Conservative Inc. started to purge dissenters from their ranks. Instead of working to build new structure outside of and opposed to official structures, dissidents kept trying to get back inside the official tent. And the result has been a ragtag army living on the land outside the walls of the city. It remains so. Now, he says probably the biggest change, the one we see evolving in front of our eyes as the military is called in to install the pretender, is that the parties are a fiction. Until very recent, most dissidents thought the way forward was to work through the two-party system and to get our guys into office. And again, this dates to the 1980s. Buchanan tried and failed to unseat the neocon Bush. Perot tried and failed with his third party to cleanse the land of the neocons. Trump tried and failed to reform the Republican Party. And the reason all of these efforts failed is the party system is a fiction. The core of each party holds the same opinions on the same important issues. They're bankrolled by the same collection of billionaires and international interests. The parties have tentacles that reach into various camps, but the main body of the system serves the people who bankroll American politics. That's something you should probably write down. The main body of the political system, the party's system, serves the people who bankroll American politics. A politician with close ties to the Chinese Communist Party can maintain his seat because the Chinese are a major backer of both parties. 
So this is the big change for dissidents. Trump was the last opportunity to keep dissidents engaged in the fiction of democracy. His own perfidy and his treatment by the political class has disabused dissidents of their faith in the system. The people in the streets at the Epiphany Uprising were not there because they still believe in the Republican Party, Donald Trump, or the system itself. They were there being cheered by tens of millions from home because dissidents lost their faith in the system. Now, further to that, it's finally dawning on dissidents that what motivates the cloud people is not what motivates the dirt people. For generations, the right insisted the left is driven by the same logic as everyone else. That was always false and part of the long con played on the public. This is why, in part, white conservatives have lost every major battle in the culture war. The people on the other side of the barricade celebrating their victory over us are not us, and they do not think like us. And he says this is probably the most important lesson of the last five years that's finally sinking into the thick skulls of the dissident right. The cloud people are not motivated by greed or a lust for power. They have those things. They're motivated by a sense of identity that starts with hatred of the dirt people. And that sense of self begins with not being anything like the people over whom they rule. That's why they hated Trump. He was an intruder from the other side, injected into their world. Now, the Z-Man concludes by saying, while many are disappointed with the Trump years and Donald Trump the man, the last five years have been a clarifying experience. The anger... Emotion, disappointment, frustration, even the violence are the result of a fog lifting. Five years ago, most people were sure about politics. Now that the fog has lifted, people are looking around and seeing it was always a big lie. The people who perpetrated these lies are on the other side of those barricades giving the rest of us the finger. Okay, that's some pretty straight up truth, right? No sugarcoating there. And you may still disagree with some of of what uh, the Z-Man writes in this case. But I think the overall lesson, look, it's, it's all a big lie. All of the melodrama, all of the reporting about this is what's happening today in Washington as if it's the most important thing in your world. It's a big lie. And I'm going to submit that it only has power so long as you continue to give it power. When we come back, we're going to talk about some alternatives. Because one of the biggest problems we're facing right now is people perceive, well, I have power over other people, so I'm going to use that power. How about we work to limit people's ability to control others and let people choose who will lead them and what their rules are? Pretty dangerous, huh? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. As crazy as things are, as uncertain as things are, the fact that we may be sitting at a pivot point in U.S. history today, I'm pretty optimistic. And I'm optimistic because I believe that uh, even though there may be some some difficult times, I think, look, I'm just going to put my cards on the table here. I think a reckoning has been long overdue. And I don't just mean fiscally. I mean, uh, politically, there has been a reckoning coming for a long time. You cannot ignore the principles and practices of liberty and still expect to reap the blessings of liberty. And I guess if I I had to sum it up, well, what's, what's the difference between us and, you know, the generations before us? 
that had greater liberty than we have. You probably won't like my answer, but for what it's worth, I believe that uh, the, the biggest difference is they possessed a moral clarity that we no longer do. And you may think that, uh, well, no, I still know right from wrong, but I'm looking generally. Look at our culture. Look, look at our society and tell me that right and wrong haven't been, you know, inverted in many cases or at the very least, you know, clouded to, to different shades of gray that uh, almost nobody can, can really discern, well, is that right? Is that wrong? Is it absolute truth? Is, is there no such thing as absolute truth? One of the greatest dangers that we encounter, though, comes from the perception that, uh, hey, my guy won a popularity contest, therefore I have the right to rule you. And I hope I'm wrong, but I have a sense that we're about to see this attitude writ large as uh, the Biden team takes over the White House and as, uh, as the Democrats control both the House and the Senate and move forward. If they feel that they are untouchable and therefore unaccountable to the people, um, it's curious to see how hard and how fast they're going to push to consolidate control. Now, they've already kind of tipped their hand in that they're already calling for a uh, new war on domestic terrorism. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Glenn Greenwald has written what I think may be one of the timeliest and and most comprehensive warnings. And I I fear it's going to fall on a lot of deaf ears. Yours will not be among them. But at at least, you know, those within this little circle of influence... You're not going to have the luxury of saying, well, nobody ever said anything. Nobody tried to warn us. No, the the warning voices are there. The question is, will people listen? I kind of like what J.D. Tusseel, writing for Reason.com, is suggesting, and that is, hey, if we want to avoid more political violence, why not allow Americans to escape each other's control? Let people join with the like-minded to reject officials and laws that don't suit them and to construct systems that do. I know if if you're if you're feeling kind of scared, this this may be maybe it's oh okay I'll listen, but uh, I'm still skeptical. But don't have a lot of choice. Things are getting worse. Here's how JD Tusseel puts it. He says thousands of National Guard troops patrol the nation's capital as I write, hoping to ensure that the scheduled transition of power from one president to the next comes off without renewed violence. That sight, unusual for the United States underlines the fact that millions of Americans no longer support the political system or believe it derives its powers from the consent of the governed, as the Declaration of Independence puts it. It's also strongly suggesting that it's time to try something new if the government under which we live is to be anything better than a resented force at war with much of the population it rules. The militarization of Washington, D.C. comes after the January 6th storming of the Capitol a shocking event with as-yet-to-be-determined repercussions. It was actually supported by about a fifth of voters, by the way, and 45% of Republicans, according to post-riot polling. Now, maybe that's not as surprising as it should be. Well, before the ginned-up controversy over presidential election results, only 24% of voters believed the government had the consent of the governed. 53% disagreed, as reported by a 2018 survey survey, rather. He says, maybe the real marvel is we avoided a January 6th-style event for so long. His point is, we have built toward this for years. While the Trumpists' storming of the Capitol was an unprecedented rejection of the established procedures for transferring power, 
it was built on trends. From the contested but peaceful 2000 election to the boycotting of Trump's 2016 victory by dozens of Democratic members of Congress as other opponents rioted blocks away, Americans have moved toward belief in the legitimacy of elections only if their side wins. And he says at some point, we're going to see an outright refusal to accept a loss, which is what occurred on January 6th. And there's no reason to expect that people will lose their distaste for political defeat in future political contests. Now, I have to throw this in just as an aside. I don't know that it's productive at this point to continue beating the the drum about uh, how um, the, the election was stolen. But I feel absolutely confident in saying there were serious, legitimate questions that were brought up about the efficacy of the process. And I don't think that any of those were given a fair hearing. So if people feel like, well, you know, something wonky was going on here, they they at least deserve an answer, or at least they deserve due diligence in, in showing how that wasn't the case. I don't think that was done. I think what we got instead was a really, you know, glaring example of shut up, they explained. And so it continues today. And unfortunately, Reason.com is, is part of Libertarian Inc. That, uh, that apparently is, you know, holding that view of, well, the elections were perfectly legitimate and nobody should be questioning them. I don't know if this is just, you know, to curry, you know, greater legitimacy within the Beltway, but it's, it's something I've observed. A lot, of the, a lot of the Libertarians of Libertarian Inc. are, are doing their best to assure Master that uh, deep down, I, I do love you and, and, and I'll, I'll toe the line. But again, I'm also gonna gonna temper this by saying I don't know I don't know how beating the drum you know the, and stop the steal is necessarily going to to solve things. I think we may be at the point where it's time to consider what JD Tuseal is suggesting here, and let's let's give people options other than uh, okay. So if this system isn't representing you, why not have a competing system? I know that sounds very dangerous to some, but listen listen to what he lays out. He says, there is no reason to expect people will lose their distaste for political defeat in future political contests. He says, how could Americans be accepting of electoral losses when many view their opponents as immoral and unpatriotic or see them as enemies of the country to the point that the major factions are defined by their hatreds? Democrats and Republicans have grown more contemptuous of opposing partisans for decades and at similar rates. That's from a 2020, uh, November 2020 paper on political sectarianism. Only recently, however, has this aversion exceeded their affection for co-partisans. So to a large extent, this is because politics has become combat, with election victors using their control of government agencies to torment, and I would add, to punish losers. John Cochran, a senior fellow of the Hoover Institution and adjunct scholar of the Cato Institute, wrote in September, it is more and more dangerous to lose an election. The vanishing ability to lose an election and not be crushed is the core reason for increased partisan vitriol, an astounding violation of basic norms on both sides of our political divide. No sane people would consent to a political system that works as a weapon against them. They would try to escape its power. One of the virtues of the original decentralized American Republic and its federalism was that if you didn't like the laws or rules where you lived, you could go elsewhere. Foot voting is still underrated as a tool for enhancing political freedom. That is the ability of people to choose the political regime under which they wish to live. That's according to George Mason University law professor Ilya Soman, who wrote this back in a 2020 paper 
expanded into a book. He said, when people are able to choose their governments, political leaders have stronger incentives to adopt policies that benefit the people or at least avoid harming them. And the people themselves are able to select the policies they prefer. Now, we're going to come back to this article here in just a few minutes. We've got to take a very quick break. Again, this is from J.D. Seal. To avoid more political violence, allow Americans to escape each other's control. I hope you think it's an idea worth considering. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program brought to you in part today by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. Look, if you have commercial insurance, you I don't have to tell you, it, it can be complicated, right? There are a lot of different things that you have to know are covered. Not everybody is fluent in, in the language of commercial insurance, but my buddy Steve Burgess at Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, he is fluent in that. And his company exists to help you make sense of it all. So if you have questions, no obligation, just get a hold of him. You can reach him through the contact information in the show notes, which you will find at the Brian Hyde Show. Com. Just go to the bottom of the show notes. There's a nice little link for my sponsors. Click on that, and it will put you right in touch with him. So I'm sharing this article from J.D. Seal To avoid more political violence, allow Americans to escape each other's controls. George Mason University law professor Ilya Soman talked about how foot voting is still underrated as a tool for enhancing political freedom. It lets people select the policies they prefer. In other words, if you don't like it, you can move. And the people that Soman references, by the way, aren't the amorphous masses, rather, discussed in social studies classes as marching to the polls to jam the alleged will of the winners down the throats of the losers. He means individuals turning their backs on governing systems they dislike and picking those that better suit them. But, as Chapman University law professor Tom Bell Another advocate of political choice points out in his 2018 book, Your Next Government, the United States has in recent decades failed to take states' rights seriously, making federal law supreme even in minutely local matters. So moving does little good when the laws and the vanishing ability to lose an election and not be crushed, as Cochran puts it, follow you. J.D. Tussil says even reviving federalism would accomplish little when many states have larger populations than the whole country did at its founding. And the major political divides run not between states or regions, but between urban and rural areas. Within localities are many people who feel trapped by circumstances in enemy territory, subject to hostile rulers and laws they despise. So how do we make more palatable? a political system that functions as a death match between mutually loathing factions who believe themselves, with reason, to be in peril when their enemies win control. We're going to return to some really uh, remarkable wisdom from the 19th century. Herbert Spencer famously argued in 1851, if every man has freedom to do all that he wills, provided he infringes not the equal freedom of any other man, 
then he is free to drop connection with the state, to relinquish its protection, and to refuse paying toward its support. Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I, I can hear bureaucrats, uh, you know, reaching for their blood pressure medication to hear that. Relinquish its protection, drop connection, refuse to pay for its support. <sighs> Boy, that would, that would set them right off. Now, fundamentally, Spencer wanted the right to exit that Soman favors, but without the physical migration of foot voting as a means of making political arrangements more widely acceptable and considerate of liberty. Now, Professor Soman not only favors radical decentralization to minimize the costs of migration, but also discusses arrangements whereby individual citizens can change government service providers without a physical move. Bell, too, believes that for the same reason that nation-states should and generally do allow the unhappy residents to emigrate, more consent-rich governing services would doubtless guarantee the freedom of citizen customers to exit to other legal systems without moving their locations. In 2001, Swiss economist Bruno Frey proposed what he called functional overlapping competing jurisdictions. Basically, governments that people choose among as if picking club memberships. Fry echoed Belgian economist Paul-Emile de Puyt, who in the 1860 article Panarchy advocated a system of non-territorial federalism under which people could freely register their support for or withdrawal from any political associations that gain sufficient support. Depoit wrote, I hope that we can all go on living together wherever we are or elsewhere if one likes, but without discord like brothers each freely holding his opinions and submitting only to a power personally chosen and accepted. These proposals expand on Spencer's right to ignore the state in empowering people to join with the like-minded, not just to reject officials and laws that don't suit them, but to construct systems that do. Their advocates emphasize existing precedents for choice in government. People choose between governments every time they choose to live in a new city, state, or country. Writes Bell, businesses and others are often able to choose for themselves which state's law will govern their dealings with each other, even if they do not actually reside in the state in question. So what if Americans could choose governing systems rather than having them jammed down their throats? They could embrace rules as limited or restrictive as they please, programs and policies that suit their tastes, and officials who resist treating election to office as opportunities to punish enemies. If dissatisfied, they could exit one system and choose another, just as they can now, but without having to shoulder the hassle and expense of loading a rental truck and driving across a border. Tensions might ease, violence might become less likely, if people who hold each other's values and lifestyles in contempt didn't have to fear government as a bludgeon in the hands of their enemies. J.D. Tusseel says, True, American politics has been moving away from allowing exit in recent years, centralizing power so that people can't escape, and even attempting to continue taxing those who flee, as California lawmakers propose. But the result has been battles between rebellious localities and higher authorities. Now troops patrol the streets of the nation's capital because nobody is willing to lose elections. He says, we can have a future of increasing conflict between Americans who hate each other, or we can make it easier for people to peacefully escape each other's control. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. I've talked about panarchy with a couple of different uh, people before, and I think it maybe is an idea that's, that's worth exploring. 
I mean, if you could choose, the, the only people who I've ever found who encountered, who, who uh, reacted to this very negatively were people who had control issues to start with, people who, who feel that, no, 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 it is, it is my prerogative to be able to tell you what to do. But then again, in my experience, you know, the control freaks have always been, you know, the, the least happy people that I've encountered. They're the ones who spend their nights lying awake worrying someone somewhere is having fun in, in an unapproved way or someone somewhere is doing something that I did not give them permission or license to do. It seems like a terrible way to live life, but, you know, to, to each their own. The prospect of being able to free yourselves from those who, who have such an attitude and who, for whatever reason, would like to, uh, to control you, I don't know. I think it's a good idea. Now, I'm going to shift gears here. I want to talk about something that uh, is uh, it's, it's not real pleasant. And it's the idea that we are about to see the launching of an expanded war on terror. I mean, most of us remember 20 years ago when the war on terror kicked into to play with 9-11. Big, earth-shaking event caught everybody's attention. I think we were all kind of scarred from what we saw and heard and experienced that day. And the war on terror, that was actually my, that was where I, I found out, you know what? I'm not a conservative. At least not in the sense that, uh, by gosh, when your country sends the flag up and we send people into harm's way, that's the time to shut up and fall in line. I looked at the reaction of what happened from the invasion of Iraq and invasion of Afghanistan to the Patriot Act, which was passed about a month after September 11th, and has drastically affected our freedoms. The war on terror, war on a tactic, was not a great idea. I don't think it was a good thing. I don't think it's, it's. I don't think it has yielded greater peace. What it's done, in my opinion, is it has expanded the power of government in virtually every area of our lives. And I mean, like, if you have money in the bank, under the war on terror, government wants to know how much are you putting in, how much are you taking out, where are you getting it, even even applying for a job, all the employ, all the uh, identification verification, getting your driver's license. We haven't even talked about flying. <laughs> if you haven't had your tactical tickles, you know, that's uh, that's part of the war on terror, too. Now, the sequel is looming large in the rearview mirror, and it's going to overtake us shortly. And the sequel is a domestic terrorism approach. Why should that concern us? Well, um, because, frankly... Um, the people who are being defined as domestic terrorists actually look and sound a lot like you and me. I know you're thinking, but surely, you know, they're, they're, they would never make that mistake. If you feel that way, I would encourage you, get your hands on a copy of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's The Gulag Archipelago. And you'll notice one of the very first things he talks about is how every single person who was arrested and sent to the Soviet gulag initially said the words to themselves, this is all just a terrible mistake. Yes, I'm being taken to the jail. Yes, I'm being, you know, brought up on charges. But surely we'll force, we'll, we'll uh, sort this out and, and they're not going to, to continue with this mistake. Nine years he spent in the gulag. We'll come back to this in Glenn Greenwald's article in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Look, I admit, I'm on kind of a heavy topic right now. My goal here is not to bring you down, but definitely to offer you some food for thought. And and again, you want to learn from the past? I, would, I, I can't recommend strongly enough a book like The Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And if, just a quick and dirty background, Solzhenitsyn was actually an officer in Stalin's army. This would have been back in the 1930s. He was, uh, he was kind of a unique individual in that he was raised as a Christian and a person of faith and was a child when the Bolsheviks came to power in 1917. So he witnessed, you know, the wholesale dismantling of any semblance of faith within his society. Um, He maintained his faith, of course, over the years. But as an officer in Stalin's army, he wrote something in a letter to a friend in which it it wasn't, you know, an outright screed or an attack on, on Stalin. But he said something unkind or something unflattering. And one of the many, uh, political officers, one of the many people who were there to ensure that, you know, there was conformity of thought, saw that letter, reported him, and he was brought up on charges of anti-Soviet activities under Article 58. And Solzhenitsyn talks about how he was sure it's a huge mistake. You know, they they came, they arrested him, and then uh, charged him with this uh, anti-Soviet activities, and then sentenced him to the Gulag, where he spent the next nine years. There is so much great wisdom in that book. But I share that example with you just because I know there are people within the sound of my voice who feel like, look, I'm a peaceful person. I've done nothing wrong. And I agree. I completely agree. I'm just, no, I'm not accusing you of, of any kind of, uh, you know, evil designs or, or even, you know, I'm not even accusing you of thinking unapproved thoughts. But the fact of the matter is there are people out there who do believe you represent a threat to them for the reasons that J.D. Tusil talks about in that you have political factions that absolutely despise each other and that believe the purpose of winning an election isn't so much so that you can govern with wisdom, but to punish and otherwise pummel your enemies because that's what they would be doing to you. Man, if there is a, if there is a less healthy state of mind than that, I don't want to know what it is. Glenn Greenwald sounds a much-needed warning about how a new domestic war on terror is coming. And for those who are tempted to say, come on now, this is just hyperbole, you know, you're exaggerating, you know, how dare you, you privileged white male Brian, you know, sit there and, and pretend that your freedoms are, you know, are in, in, in uh, danger's way. Well, I like how Glenn Greenwald puts it, and Glenn is definitely not somebody who I would say, you know, is the epitome of the American right. He's he's actually a pretty straight-down-the-line journalist. And he says, no speculation is needed. Those who wield power are demanding a new domestic war on terror. The only question that remains is how much opposition they will encounter. He says, the last two weeks have ushered in a wave of new domestic police powers and rhetoric in the name of fighting, in quotation marks, terrorism, that are carbon copies of the worst excesses of the first war on terror that began nearly 20 years ago. The trend shows no sign of receding as we move farther away from the January 6th Capitol riot. In fact, the opposite is true. It is intensifying. And by the way, it's not just the politicians. 
He says, we've witnessed an orgy of censorship from Silicon Valley monopolies with calls for far more aggressive speech policing of visibly militarized Washington, D.C., featuring a non-ironically named Green Zone, vows from the incoming president and his key allies for a new anti-domestic terrorism bill, and frequent accusations of sedition, treason, and terrorism against members of Congress and citizens. This is all driven by a radical expansion of the meaning incitement meaning of incitement to violence. It's accompanied by a viral on-social-media plea that one work with the FBI to turn in one's fellow citizens. See something? Say something? And it, de- and it also has demands for a new system of domestic surveillance. Now, Glenn Greenwald says, underlying all of this are the immediate is insinuations that anyone questioning any of this must, by virtue of these doubts, harbor sympathy for the terrorists and their neo-Nazi white supremacist ideology. You forgot Russian control, but that's okay. Liberals have spent so many years now in a tight alliance with neocons and the CIA that they are making the 2002 version of John Ashcroft look like the president of the old school ACLU. He says the more honest proponents of this new domestic war on terror are explicitly admitting that they want to model it on the first one. A New York Times reporter noted on Monday that a former intelligence official on PBS NewsHour said that the U.S. should think about a 9-11 commission for domestic extremism and consider applying some of the lessons from the fight against al-Qaeda here at home. More amazingly, General Stanley McChrystal, for years head of Joint Special Operations Command in Iraq and commander of the war in Afghanistan, explicitly compared that war to this new one. Speaking to Yahoo News, he said, I did see a similar dynamic in the evolution evolution of al-Qaeda in Iraq, where a whole generation of angry Arab youth with very poor prospects followed a powerful leader who promised to take them back in time to a better place, and he led them to embrace an ideology that justified their violence. This is now happening in America. I think we're much further along in this radicalization process and facing a much deeper problem as a country than most Americans realize. End quote. Now, anyone who, despite all this, still harbors lingering doubts that the Capitol riot is and will be the neoliberal 9-11 and that a new war on terror is being implemented in its name need only watch the two short video clips that he includes in his article, which will clear their doubts for good. He says it's like being catapulted by an unholy time machine back to Paul Wolfowitz's 2002 messaging lab. Now, I'm just going to, this is the point where I'm going to urge you, go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com And see this for yourself. The article is from Glenn Greenwald. It is right there. Easy to find. Take the time to read it, though. Take the time to weigh it out. I'm not telling you you have to accept his warning. But I'm telling you, I'm placing some importance on this because I think he's right. So, with that recommendation, I would encourage you to take a look at it, too, and decide what you think. Now, this brings me to one final article, and this is from Kent McManagle. It's called Holding Your Tongue at the, ga- at the Gun Counter. And as much as I'm talking about, boy, this is the time to speak up, I'm also going to share with you Kent's message, which is, be careful what you say. He says, a couple of days ago, I was at the gun counter in a national sporting goods chain. The, a customer told the counter guy he was just looking, but then commented he noticed they seemed to have sold a lot of scopes in the past week. The counter guy said, we are selling a lot of everything. He said, people are even coming in to buy 22 long guns for home defense. And Kent says, I knew the reasons behind that. 
Another counter guy and customer were talking, and he says, I overheard the customer expressing his opinion that Trump had been the defender of liberty and Biden would basically be the end of America. Now, Ken says, I, I bit my tongue to stop myself from pointing out that while Biden is an openly anti-gun bigot with big plans for your guns, Trump was sneakier about it. He pretended to be on your side while violating your rights the first opportunity he got. In other words, Trump is no friend of gun owners. Unfortunately, Biden, with the help of a majority of anti-liberty liberty Congress vermin, will probably be much worse. But yeah, he says, I said nothing. I just stood there looking complacent and oblivious because it's the best I can do in such situations. He says, long ago, I decided it's best not to comment on politics while in a gun store, other than his favorite store back in Colorado, but he says that was different. He says, during my time in Pennsylvania, I had visited a gun store in my first couple of days there, and as I was leaving on foot, it began to rain hard enough to drown frogs. A customer who was also leaving noticed that I was on foot and offered me a ride back to my motel. On the way, he warned me, that the gun shop owner was a former cop and that many of its customers were current and former cops. He told me to watch what I said in there to avoid problems. Now, Kent says, I hadn't said anything to anyone, so I was safe, but I thanked him for the warning. And this is the warning that he's sounding for you and I. You apply this as necessary. It doesn't necessarily even have to be police. Remember, we were told, uh, we people were urged following the Capitol Hill riot, if you know of neighbors who are there, turn them in. So you don't know when there might be a snake in the grass, says Kent McManigal. Yes, the popular with cops, thug, rug, haircut can be a dead giveaway, but don't rely on it. And he says, and anyone might be a Stasi. His point is simply this. There's a time to speak up and there's a time to observe and collect data. Wisdom is knowing which time it is. And as outspoken as I intend to be on matters involving freedom of conscience, personal liberty, private property rights, freedom of religion. That's something I'm going to have to practice as well. All right, this is, this is my day job. This is what I do. I'm going to speak truth as long as I have breath in my lungs. But when I'm out and about, I'm going to be careful about what I say and, and around whom I say it. Might not be a bad habit for you to consider as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show.